because often they're gathering out rains to see if umbrellas that uh, But that wasn't quite captured by imagination, compelling to have many Jews. What was compelling to me was um, often they would be singing a song. And that song was actually a Christian song. There's a lot of protesters, a lot of leaders of protesters from churches, evangelical churches in particular. And the song they sang um, is a song from the 70s, not a child of the 70s. Uh, and I'm not going to sing it, but some of you will know it. I know, sing Hallelujah to the Lord. Um, so, shall I try to sing it? You might pursue it. She's saying so it's this, this is really, really simple, simple song that you can see around, and it's uh, it, it kind of the Jesus people movement um, that sort of It's a very simple religious song, and so Christians and non-Christians alike in our hundreds of thousands can sing this song. Why would they sing this song? It became the unofficial. It is the unofficial anthem of this, um, this movement, and uh, the reason it's here because. It, the Chinese law is that you can't have unauthorized political rallies, but you can have religious gatherings. And so, coming plan, they would sing this song and to uh, indicate it's a religious gathering, not a political gathering. Uh, it was a, a religious gathering with the globe, as it has to be said. And on one particular occasion, they stand this around, this is like the ultimate earworm, for 18 hours straight. Maybe an hour straight, you now you would never get it out of, out of your mind afterwards. Why, why do I share that story? In Hong Kong, uh, in so many other places around the world, that have you like to just establish a relationship with open doors and work with the persecuted across our world. In so many places around the world, um, Christian believers are still rising Christ like you and me and going through significant trial and tribulation. And um, the biggest thing that's happening in Hong Kong is uh, where uh, they are really working for freedom uh, to associate, freedom of religion, freedom of liberty, and so on and so forth. And um, I was reflecting on uh, what's happening in Hong Kong as recently we worked our way in the U.S. through the letter of James. And James is writing to a church that's going to control the relations. Nothing might be placed here, although we have our own trials and tribulations. So it's relevant that uh, what, what James writes to the church scattered across the Roman Empire around the year 48 AD is the same, uh, has, has the same sort of message for those of us who live in the 21st century Australia, or in the 21st century Hong Kong, or the 21st century Syria, or wherever it might be. Because it's true this time. So what I want to do this afternoon is to work through the first four verses of James, the letter of James. If you have a Bible, you can look it up on your, uh, on your uh, phone. Jump to that right now. James, the servant of God, says this, is the first four verses. James, the servant of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, grieves. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the test of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So, let's work through it verse by verse. That's what it says in James 1 verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. 
So the first question we have to ask and answer is who is James? And that's not an easy answer, that's not an easy question to answer because the New Testament actually lists six different men with the name James. In fact, two of the disciples of Jesus, James the son of Zebedee and James the son of Alphaeus, uh, had that name. Uh, and for what historians, what church uh, historians have established, without, without too much doubt, is that the James that wrote this letter of the six options available to us is a man that is known through tradition, James the Just, or James the brother of Jesus. So, actually, a direct sibling of Jesus. And what do we know of James, the brother of Jesus? Well, what we know is this, is that um, for all of Jesus' public ministry, he was a skeptic. Um, he was a brother of Jesus, but he didn't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah, um, like much of Jesus' own family. But James, uh, the brother of Jesus, had an encounter with the resurrected, we read this through the Acts of the Apostles, had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, which effectively converted Jesus. He was also there in the upper room on the day of Pentecost when the, the Holy Spirit fell on the believers who were gathered there and became a, a leader in the church. He, in fact, he became the established leader of the church in Jerusalem. Why is that important? Well, let me explain. Is anyone who visits first? Prince Philip, 98 years old, just retired from public life. Uh, probably should retire from driving his awful drive as well. Uh, but if you were to, if you were to go to a state dinner where Prince Philip, um, when he was still in public life, where Prince Philip was being introduced, and you stood up as he was being introduced according to protocol, this is why uh, the Master of Ceremonies would have to introduce Prince Philip. His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh, Earl of Maranoa, Baron Greenwich, Royal Highness, most noble order of the Garda, extra knights, most ancient, most notable order of the Thistle, member of the Order of Merit, Knight Grand Cross, the Royal Victorian Order, Grand Master and First Principal Knight Grand Cross, the most excellent order of the British Empire, Knight of the Order of Australia, additional member of the Order of New Zealand, extra companion of the Queen's Third Order, Royal Chief of the Order of Law and extraordinary companion of the Order of Canada, extraordinary commander of the Order of Military Merit, Canadian Forces Decoration, Order of Her Majesty's Most Honourable Privy Council, member of Her Majesty's a um, uh, uh, member of the Queen's Privy Council of Canada, personal aide of Congress of His Majesty King George V, Sixth Lord Admiral, Lord High Admiral of the United Kingdom. That's how he introduced as a story. Well, the time you sat down, your suit would be cold. Yeah. I would be. Why do I say that? Now, if I was James, the brother of Jesus, and I was writing a letter to introduce myself to people I had not met. I would be tempted to say, James, the brother of the Messiah, the Lord of the Most High God, most confident of the King of Kings, I would be introducing myself with all the sort of confidence ceremony I could muster because of my close association with Jesus. But what does James say? He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Here's a really interesting thing. The word that is translated as servant is the word doulos, which can also be translated as the word slave. The brother of Jesus introduces himself, not as the brother of Jesus, but as a slave, as a servant of Jesus. And what he was communicating was this radical humility, which is the heart of the gospel. He was communicating to his brothers and sisters 
Jesus as solidarity, but also the authority that he had, not as a brother of Jesus, but as a servant of Jesus, because that's where our authority comes from. We live in a culture that's uh, absolutely obsessed with titles and achievements and status. I am what I have achieved. I am the titles I have proved. I am the status that I have earned. But our gospel, the gospel that we celebrate every time we gather in this place, our identity is not in what we have achieved, it's in what has been achieved for us. The radical difference. My status isn't in the balance of my successes and failures, it's in the grace of faith that's mine in through Jesus Christ. I'm not who the world says I am. I'm not who I say I am. I'm not who anyone says I am. I am who God says I am. And who I am is this a son of God, a friend of Jesus, a servant of the King. So no longer, this is the liberation, the freedom of Christ. No longer do I need to strive to measure up because in Christ, in whom my identity is, I have been lifted up. And there's enormous freedom in there. We don't have to parade that side of the rest of us. I don't know about you, but for me, that's the future. That's the future. So he writes, James the Just, servant of Jesus, to the twelve tribes scattered throughout the world. And then he was writing this church historian, some of you Testament scholars tell us, around the year 48 AD, and already persecution had the church, and most of the church at this stage was still Jewish believers who had come to believe that Jesus was the one awaiting his sight. And James, who is himself a Jewish Christian, is writing to them, uh, and, and so the Jewish Christians who, uh, because of their belief in Jesus as the Messiah, many of them had been thrown out of the God, they cut off from the family, they had lost their jobs, some of them had been beaten, um, some of them had even lost their lives already. In other words, it was writing to the leaders suffering and enduring hardship and suffering. What does he have to say to This is what he says. This is the radical counter nature of the gospel. He says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because of knowing that the testimony of faith produces perseverance. Now, this is not the sort of advice you find on the self-help section of the bookshop. It has to be said. This is counterintuitive advice as often it is in the gospel, both then and now. We live in a culture where uh, we do everything we can to avoid pain, uh, sometimes in, in really unhealthy ways. But he said, consider it pure joy. Now, there's not much ambiguity in this. Consider it utter, overflowing, all-encompassing, life-defining joy. Joy is full whenever you endure trials. So what are trials? The trials very simply are an unwelcome and or unanticipated experience. And it has to be said that first century Christendom, uh, the experience of first century and first century Christians was one where it was a trial of rich environments. There are all sorts of trials and tribulations in that place. And so he's right at there saying, consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind, not just the ones you choose, but of any kind. What does that have to say to us? Now we don't live in first century Palestine, we live in 21st century Gold Coast. It's hard perhaps to identify the saints and trials that would 
we face things now, but that we still face trials. There's no room for people facing trials. There could be trials around our health, a, a diagnosis that we rather not live for a betrayal of a relationship, or a grief, or loss, or pain, or disappointment. The reality is this is a room full of people facing trials, both large and small. And one of the great questions that that philosophers and theologians and Christians alike wrestle with is why a trial so unique, why are they so much a part of life? You know, I, I was reflecting on this afternoon in my preparation, you know, um, we will often use the metaphor that life is made up of mountaintops and valleys. You know, the, the, and I love what some really grown says, that mountaintops are down from the view, it's in the valleys that some of the best fruit is grown. Um, I don't know about you, but it seems like more often than not I find myself in a valley rather than a mountaintop. Going through those struggles uh, that are part of everyday life. So why are the trials so indeed? Why do bad things happen to good people like you and me? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good. Um, are you? Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, trials and tribulations are part of the every flow of everyday life, of all the world, in a world that's much more sin by the endemic rebellion of people against God and His law. And so it's one of the symptoms of that fallenness of our world. But also we have an adversity of Satan who seeks to kill and rob and destroy, and, and one of the tools that he uses are trials and tribulations that bring suffering and bring pain. It is a really sobering reality that when you read the New Testament, when you read the scriptures, you discover that New Testament conviction is very clear and compelling. That trials are inevitable for the believer. In fact, Jesus himself said, In this world you'll have no continuous mountaintop experiences. No. In this world you will have trouble. You'll have trouble. In this world you will have trouble. In face of following Jesus increasingly in our culture and in our days. Following Jesus is it means that it's more likely than not we will face more trials rather than less. But here's the good news, as I hope we'll see today, that there's meaning and purpose and promise in our trials as well. James goes on to say, the test of your faith produces endurance. A, a trial, another way of describing a trial, a trial proves the quality of something or someone to reverse it. For example, when uh, the Navy builds a new frigate, uh, it'll be engineered you know, with, with ridiculous detail. Uh, it'll take sometimes decades of designs and completion before it goes out to what could be city trials. It'll go down uh, the slipway and then slide into the water, and then for some months it'll go to sea trials, where it will be uh, all experienced every possible maneuver go to the boat all the time and peace, putting it through its paces to see whether it's up to what it's been designed for. Trials, trials prove the quality of something or someone to reverse it. So, now when that's, when that manuscript is, is launched for its seat trials, I don't think the engineers are going to be waiting on the dry landing, I hope it's not. 
That's not what they're hoping. They know it's going to be close. We need to meet this point. Is it going to be up to what it's designed to do? What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? What the what the trial will do is it proves the quality of something or someone to reverse it. See trials then strengthen the integrity of an already worthy issue. Applying it to our everyday life. The trials we face are not a test to see if we have faith, whether we will think or not, but the testing of our faith so as to strengthen it, so as to reduce perseverance that will then lead on to maturity. Trials strengthen our faith as we develop perseverance. Now, one of the great mysteries, if I'll just name, I won't explore it here today. One of the great mysteries is, you know, where, what's the origin of the trials that we face? I think what we need to recognise as we read it in the Lord's sleep of Scripture is that often God will allow trials to come our way. And sometimes it's the thing I find the most challenging of all, but increasingly as I grow in my faith, I've come to understand that in ways, in, in mysterious ways, I don't fully comprehend. Sometimes God even sends Sometimes it's a form of people who are at fault, but I'll fix that later on. But sometimes that does happen. Now, one of the heroes of my day is a man from Charles Burgess, who was a 19th century Baptist pastor. He believed to be one of the world's first mega churches, for want of a better word, in London. He was a renowned preacher pastor, which at a very young age Incredible problems both in England, but also in America and across the world through his publications and through his reputation as just a compelling preacher. But here's the thing about Charles Spurgeon for most of his life, most of his life, he struggled with crippling mental health issues. He was depressed, but he suffered what we would know today with the clinical depression for much of his life and with crippling anxiety as well. There were some days where, in fact, some weeks where he couldn't even get out of bed. This man who was renowned and who was acclaimed as this great pastor and preacher. And, and uh, there were times where he spared the life even himself. But if, through all that adversity, he would pray that God would take that crippling, that crippling anxiety and depression away from him. But as those prayers seemed to be unanswered, he trusted the why. Why was he that was suffering this? He trusted the wine to God. And Charles Spurgeon had a way with words. He said this, The sovereignty of God, that is, the, the, the all-knowing nature of God, is the pillow on which the child of God rests their head. I'll trust you, God, in the wine, even in the midst of my trial. This is the thing about trials. We don't endure trials with statism. That's just our life. It's just the way life is. We persevere in them with faith, knowing that God is up to something, that God has meaning and purpose in it and will strengthen us through it. Let's move on. We go to verses 3 and 4. It says this Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Here's the thing when we go through trials, endurance is not the goal. Maturity and perfection, becoming more like Jesus is. You see, the render to God, trials stand lifeless, shape us, mould us more into the image of Jesus. 
Another way of putting it is this way. Suffering can be sanctified, can be purified. Pain can be protected. Peter Scudero, who's a pastor from New York, uh, wrote, a book, wrote a number of books around uh, emotional health. And uh, he says this, God comes to our lives disguised as setbacks, disappointments, and people who drive us crazy. Can you name He is present, and if we are open, we'll see him in these experiences, allowing him to form and free us through them. Suffering can be sanctified, pain can be perfected. When we surrender our trials to God, Again, Charles Spurgeon said this, reflecting on his own suffering, on his own trials. He said, I am certain I never did grow in grace one half as much anywhere as I have on the bed of the night. We say, we know that. We would not choose the journey of pain and suffering and difficulty and disappointment and grief. That path is not a path any of us would choose. But we know as we surrender that journey to God, God can do remarkable things in and through it, and most especially in us. As I said, this is a road full of trials and pain and suffering, disappointment, mental health struggles, diagnoses that we would rather not get through, marriage struggles, money struggles. This is a room that's full of trials and tribulations because it's a room full of people. It's just the nature of life. But this is also a room overflowing with the presence, power, and promise of God. Can I be amazing to that? <laughs> so, let me finish by, by offering what I hope will be um, a way in which we can face the trials and tribulations that we're not facing them now, we will face tomorrow or the next day or the next day. The sense of hope and purpose. Looking to Jesus for that example. See, in our trials, Jesus is our example. He's our example. I mean, the prophet Isaiah speaks and uh, uh, prophesies about the coming Messiah, not as this grand king, as a suffering servant. And, and Jesus, when he does eventually arrive in, in earthly form, he arrives, of course. In humble sort of, and with our humble beginnings. And his public ministry, after the first 30 years of his life, begins with temptation for 40 days in the wilderness, being tempted by the devil, and it ends. And so it begins with trials, and it, and it ends uh, where, in the garden of the assembly, where the cup of suffering is in front of him. Where literally, as he prays, he's sweating drops of blood, and where he surrenders his will to the will of the Father. You know, it could be your will, Lord, let this, let this cup of suffering pass me by. But not my will, but yours, Lord, he said. So Jesus surrendered his will to the sovereignty of the Father. He's the good news of the gospel, and and again, I've been reading lately a book about the history of the early church and the history of Christianity. And when you've been raised in a Christian culture, for what it's worth, or being raised in the church, you sometimes don't get a handle on how radical the gospel message is. Because we have a God, the gospel says, who doesn't run from our pain. 
uses the metaphor of the slopes, we have this opportunity to fix our eyes on one which stands across this scorned and shame, who persevered into us, fix our eyes on him and run in the land that God provides us, whether that rain is a rain filled with trials and tribulations or a rain that is to run out of us 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 to British leader of the church, Andrew W. E. Sanson, towards the end of his life, woke up one day and there was a little catch in his throat and he had um, a subtle restriction movement in his leg. And, uh, soon after, he was diagnosed what we know now as a neurons. That terrible disease that steals life of life. Over a period of time, over the course of a few years, he uh, lost a variety of functions that you and I would like. The ability to support, uh, the ability eventually to even talk to a preacher that was devastating. He was you know, a renowned leader in the church, known across the world, a great preacher, a great orator, and uh, he never ever been suffering in his pain sort of gave in to self-pity. He would say to his children, I'm only, I'm only in the kindergarten of suffering. I'm just in the kindergarten of suffering. And uh, only a few weeks before his life, in the last Easter that he celebrated, he no longer talked, he had a swallow. He wrote a letter to uh, his daughter, he to, uh, to write a letter to his daughter in barely legible form. And he said this, It's terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice in the strike. He is risen. But we still be more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. Now we have been given a voice. A voice with which we can bring our trials and tribulations and not force our salvation and virtue. Even if it's in the storm. Come to him,